You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician and editor-in-chief of Maine, Maine Home Design, Old Port, Ageless, and Moxie Magazines. Love, Maine Radio show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com, grownupgirl.com, where you can get personalized guidance and encouragement for growing a simple yet vibrant life through free advice, workshops, and mentoring programs with local experts. You deserve to shine. Go to grownupgirl.com now to learn about our available programs and classes designed just for you in the Portland area. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port, 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the works of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Dr. Owen Loeb is the executive director of the Governor Baxter School for the Deaf Maine Educational Center for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing on Mackworth Island in Falmouth. He has over 30 years of experience working in education. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. My pleasure. You've done a lot of work in the educational field. I mean, you have a doctorate of education from Vanderbilt. You have a master's in education from the University of Maine and a bachelor of arts in the University of Southern Maine. But you've also done work in social welfare. You've done work in special education. What has what has driven that path for you? Well, I think uh, my path was driven largely because of the influence of my my family. You know, I was born deaf in Orono, Maine, and uh, at that time, my parents had to navigate a lot of educational opportunities for me because there was a choice made not to send me to a school for the deaf because at that time, it was only signing deaf, ASL's deaf, and they wanted me to someday be a spoken language deaf person. And um, there were a lot of challenges around that because they um, they would know such programs and public schools didn't have the right, didn't have to take you because um, there was just no, no laws in place for that. So my parents had to create all these opportunities for me, like speech and hearing centers and um, summer programs and eventually they got me into public school. Uh, it's just an incredible effort. And I didn't know any of this until I was like about 21, until I asked my mother one day and just really discovered the story of my life basically. And that redirected me completely to dedicate my life to making the lives of others better. And so I started out in social work and um, it was really hard to do that work, residential work, and I got recruited for a program like Teach for America called Teacher Corps, and it was a fully funded program to go back to school, and I got my special education degree. So from there, I became a teacher of a deaf in Bangor High, and that began the be- beginning of the journey of exploring myself as a deaf individual and, and to um, teach three young women um, in high school that eventually went on to college and and then I went on to higher education and became a director of disability services and eventually became an academic, de- academic dean 
um, just my, my just amazing journey for my life and I'm so humbled that I've had all these opportunities in my lifetime. So as you were growing up you didn't know that your parents were going to these extraordinary efforts for you. That's right. My, I asked my mother, I, I said, well, why am I only knowing this now? And she, my, my mother's response was, I needed to know that you were okay and that you weren't going to fall back and realize the true story of your life. So part of the story that I haven't mentioned yet is that at the age of six, I still couldn't talk. I only, I only spoke 20 words. I didn't have a vocabulary. Sentence. I couldn't speak sentences. And uh, even that, even though I had therapy every week and my mother became my therapist, you know, all these things were, were not making me a spoken, a speaker rather. So, um, so the, all of a sudden, my, um, at the age of six, my parents took me to Massachusetts Eye you know, Throat Hospital because they knew I was deaf, but they couldn't understand why I couldn't at least speak some language. And I was misdiagnosed at that time of expressive aphasia, which is another term for uh, brain damage, uh, inability to speak due to brain damage. And uh, so it just speaks so strongly to my parents' faith that I would someday speak, and, and it happened at, uh, shortly after the age of six. And, it's, um, it's an amazing story. It's, uh, it's a spiritual beast, but my parents um, had a friend that went to Rome and met Pope John the Twenty-Third. And Pope John the Twenty-Third did a blessing of a medallion, and it coincided shortly after the blessing that I spoke for the first time. And my mother was an um, amazing therapist, and always made me look at her. and And I, I heard the cat meow, and I turned to my mother and I said. Mommy to cat me out like you always said it did. And I had never spoken a sentence before that. So my friend came back from Rome and asked my mother if I was speaking and she said, yes, why do you ask? And so I have this blessing of a medallion I wear every day in my life to, to try a little bit harder. So I'm, I'm strongly um, committed to my life, my life work, I guess. But it really comes from the work that my parents gave me. So I asked my mother, I said, how did you know you made the right decision? They wanted me institutionalized at the age of six in Boston. And she said, I saw the twinkles in your eyes. And I knew we had to do what we did. So, um, and um, so I, my whole journey has been all about giving back, paying forward to my parents for what they gave to me with no regrets. And, uh, and it's been an extremely rewarding and rich field uh, always. You know, I have friends who've made a lot of money in the, in the business world, and they all say that I'm the far richer man for, for my life's work, you know, and I agree with them. I'm struck by this possibility that at the age of six, somebody might have said, oh, this individual has expressive aphasia, this individual yeah. essentially is locked in, yep. and that you could have spent the rest of your life not well, being able to communicate, but being very active in your mind and and what a huge difference that would have made to you. Of course. Well, I spoke at a conference one time and I, this young woman in the front row was crying through my speech and I, and I apologized after my speech and she said, no, you don't understand. My brother was your age and he was diagnosed expressive aphasia and he went to that school and 12 years later they apologized. They made a mistake. He never had expressive aphasia. So, yeah, <clears throat> you're right. I would have easily 
mimic the behavior of all the other children I was around. I wouldn't know. I certainly wouldn't be speaking. And um, so I know that, and I'm so grateful. Why not do the American Sign Language? Why did your parents well, feel it was so yeah. important for you to Very speak? good question. And, um, and I embraced what they call bimodal, which is spoken language in ASL now. Um, but at that time, there was a very divided camp that you either uh, spoken language, oral deaf, or your ASL deaf, and there was nothing in between. So it was a very big divide for families. Families had to make a choice. And, um, you know, I just didn't know other deaf people until I was 21 years old. And, um, you know, so you know, so I'll talk about that, but, but it's just great, the work I'm doing now, because children at a very young age and families are, are, are joined together with a commonality of deafness. And it doesn't matter if you're spoken language or ASL, it doesn't matter. We all have the same experience. Has there been um, any change in the controversy over the technology that now enables people to hear? Yeah. Because I know that it used to be that people, there was a big divide between people who were born deaf and chose to remain deaf and people who were born deaf and chose to yeah. have the technology necessary to be able to hear again. Where are we with that now? Oh, I think we're uh, just many years ahead. I mean, just by virtue of me being an educational leader now, um, decades ago, I wouldn't have been considered uh, the likely candidate to be the leader um, because of spoken language. And um, but I am, like I said, I embrace bimodal, which is the ASL and, and spoken language. And um, so, the biggest thing has really been the technology. The cochlear implant has really just dramatically changed the landscape of deaf education and deafness in general. We are able to, uh, we have the newborn grant here in Maine now, so the, the first day of a, of a newborn's life, we know if a child is born deaf, and immediately we bring in our team, um, uh, ASL, uh, deaf person and a spoken language, um, deaf person into the hospitals and so families know what's ahead of them and we stay with them all the way until they ask us not to be in, in the lives of the children so that's remarkable because um, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 11 months and it's not uncommon I met many adults like myself who didn't know until they were five or six years old that they had any deafness or anything so the cochlear implant is huge um, the technology um, I, I brought my, my first hearing aid to show you later, but it's a body aid. It was one sound for everyone. Um, now I have digital hearing aids, which is customized. Uh, Bluetooth is an amazing thing. I usually have a Bluetooth device that I wear for phone calls. So, um, you know, anyone else wouldn't know that, that I'm listening and the sound goes directly to my hearing aids. And um, it's just everything is just so amazing now. Uh, technology, we can see uh, closed captioning on TVs. Uh, there's a system called CART where you can have instant court reporting transcription that comes virtually online. Uh, it's just unbelievable what is out there. So that has made all the difference. The challenge has been, and I see in this work, it's children with, with significant special needs. They have other issues beyond deafness. And that's what we're really ch challenged with now. How do we best meet the needs of the children who have deafness 
and other issues as well and um and we're working very hard at that but uh, what you're speaking to um there was a time when they talked about being deaf um and asl only um at one point you know deaf marrying deaf was extremely high like 90 percent deaf marrying deaf but one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that um, there's also 90% of deaf children are born to hearing parents. So it takes a long time for a lot of deaf individuals to have what I call the deaf experience. I mentioned that I was 21 before I had that, and it was by chance that I discovered that the United States has a, um, a deaf Olympic team that competes in, um, you know, in a national, I mean, international team, 2,000 athletes in track and field, for example. And I had a chance to represent the United States. And that was the first time I've really been in, in a deaf environment. And, and it's wonderful. I, I had a chance to qualify three times for the Olympic team. And, and I, every time I just grew deeper and deeper in love with the culture of being and my identity as being deaf. I grew up being almost ashamed of being deaf. You know, I didn't want people to know I was deaf. I used to wear my hair over my hearing aids, and, and I just totally denied all help, you know, and, and it's unfortunate. And so I don't want that to happen to anyone else in their future. So how would you describe the deaf experience? For me or in general? Yeah. Um, well, the deaf experience is, like you said uh, before, it it is kind of a confusing one. They use a term that I like a lot called deafhood. And deafhood speaks to the commonality of all of us having the same experience of not hearing. And, and it takes different shapes and forms. And, um, you know, we all take different paths along how we get there. And so the deaf experience is, is it's a beautiful thing when you're in the company of like hundreds of people who are deaf and, and just conversing and signing and and, and the Olympic um, the American Sign Language is only universal to the United States and Canada so when you go to other countries it, it doesn't it doesn't it's all it's all hand motions and you know like a lot of trading do you trade uniforms and trade shoes and and it's just so exciting and just very electrifying and uh, so I love the experience of um, being in the deaf community. Uh, the, the music, you know, the signing of deaf deaf events is is, is very very beautiful, and uh, so I'm very proud of of the staff I work with. I have over 80 staff members I work with, and I have a very high percentage of deaf and hard of hearing adults who who work with um, our team, and and the work they're doing is just so electrifying. I guess that's the best word I can use. When I was growing up, there was significant sadness around the Governor Baxter School oh. because there was abuse that happened on that island yeah. um, with the children. And this is now decades yeah. ago. But it certainly left a legacy that um, I, I believe would be difficult to overcome. Mm. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned that. Because that was my generation. There were 200 men that were molested uh, by one individual. And, and it is a very dark history. And, you know, when I was interviewing for the job, that came up and, and the point was made very clearly that we've moved on. We don't want to dwell on that. That's up. That's happened. And I've worked extremely hard 
to welcome all deaf individuals to come back to the island. Um, we host a lot of different events on the island, uh, a lot of meetings. Uh, we have a Deaf Cultural Week every year in the fall, and it's just so fun to see a lot of people letting go and coming back and embracing their experience. And we have a wonderful uh, museum. Uh, Bill Nye, a former science teacher, has created this incredible museum. It's one of the best, and uh, so, um, you know, so it's fun to see deaf people from all over the country come to see the museum. So and of course, Macworth Island is just incredibly gorgeous, you know, just the surrounding. Um, you know, Governor Baxter willed his 100-acre land, and um, he gave his summer mansion. And, um, you know, it's just so, so beautiful. So this is Bill Nye, the science guy? No, he's not a scientist. It's funny. He, he, he's referred to as a deaf science guy, but he's not the famous Bill Nye. So um, a the sci- yeah, a different Bill Nye. A different Bill different Nye. Different Bill Nye who is also a science guy. That's right. right. But he's also, ironically, Bill Nye is in his 80s. He, he is a, a former science teacher. So that happens a lot. But, How uh, many students do you have at your school now? Well, we have a very vibrant preschool program on the island, and that's um, roughly 30 students, and not all are deaf and hard of hearing. Some are hearing, so some families are choosing their children to have that kind of total immersion experience, and we want our children to have have that experience. And uh, it's one of the, it's gaining a lot of national and international attention for its approach. They have a, a room where spoken language only, and where the uh, a hearing teacher of a deaf, and then there's also an ASL deaf teacher who um, is teaching ASL only. So when you walk into one room, you sign only in one room, and then you go to the other room and it's spoken language only, and it's really gained a lot of uh, attention all over the world, and um, it's very forward-thinking, very innovative, and um, it's kind of the, the idea from uh, Karen Hopkins the director of, of the whole preschool programming. And um, so it just really embraces spoken language, ASL, and just takes away, you know, the challenge of families making the right choices because we document the development of each child that we can show that they how quickly they're learning ASL uh, and how quickly they're learning spoken language. There's a movement to, to encourage children to learn ASL as their primary language from which they then build the, the spoken language and a lot of research uh, proving that that is the greatest, a better way to go. And uh, so we've seen children making great advances um, by being immersed and being fluent in ASL and then a spoken language. What do you think of um, this cultural movement of introducing babies to sign language? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot to, you know, like I said, the, the research is really supporting that kind of uh, quickly. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of families, deaf or not, deaf children being exposed to uh, any kind of concept. And if you think about it, it really it makes a lot of sense if you want to express some basic desires like being thirsty or hungry, etc. Um, you know, your dog, your cat, and I mean, it's a beautiful language, and it's very expressive and easy to learn. So, yeah, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Tell me about some of the challenges that you have um, encountered over the years in education. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, 
like I said before, the technology was extremely poor. Um, at that time in Maine, we had such few services available. Um, there was only two speaking here therapists in the state of Maine at that time, and one in Waterville and one in Portland. And um, there was some extreme financial hardship for families because they had to pay for everything. And um, unless they went to um, an institution like uh, Governor Baxter School for the Deaf or like Clark uh, School in Northampton, which is an oral deaf school, if families committed to that institutional piece, the financial piece didn't often come with that because they didn't have to pay for all these services. So because my parents were kind of in no man's land, so to speak, um, they had to create their services and pay for everything. And it was really hard to do that. But so the technology is really, really big because I can't stress enough what it would sound like. If you think about digital hearing aids, it's sort of like the Bose radio versus um, uh, what used to be like a transistor radio, like a really cheap sound. So the richness of sounds is, is um, what we refer to as ancestor sound is so great, especially with cochlear implants. So cochlear implants are children who were born profoundly deaf. And we're seeing children being cochlear implanted by one year old now. And we just, now we, we can put hearing aids on two week old babies. I mean, so this whole idea of a life of silence is, is very rare. Um, there is a percentage of failure for cochlear implants. That's not a guarantee. It's about a 5% failure rate. So we do, we have seen children who have been unsuccessful you know, with cochlear implants. And that's unfortunate because that, that will, you can't regain that. You, you lose it and you don't have it. But for those who can, as the sounds, we're seeing a lot. But we, you know, there are a lot of challenges because language is so driven to the acquisition of spoken language, reading and writing is all based on what you hear. And Helen Keller was once asked if she had a choice of being the deaf or blind. Um, she said she would prefer to be blind over deafness, and a lot of people don't understand that. I understand that. Not that I would want to be um, blind, but the the mastery of language and reading, writing, all that really is driven by what you hear. So it makes a lot of sense to me when I think about Helen Keller's choice. So, for, um, yeah. So. And what are you hoping to see for the future? What is it that, what direction do you hope that your students will um, go in? Well, um, I really like the direction that um, the organization is going. I mean, all over across the country, you know, school for the deaf are not what they used to be. We used to have 200 children uh, on Macworth Island that lived on campus, and, um, you know, we don't have that anymore because they're we have, uh, we're now embedded in, in the Portland public school system, East End Community School, uh, we're, we're at uh, Lyme Moore Middle School, and then Portland High School, and then the Path Vocational School. So that's kind of the trend that we're moving students into the main city experience, but we have incredible support services for them to be successful in that. So our biggest challenge here in Maine is that we don't have enough teacher for depth. Uh, sign language interpreters. Um, <clears throat> I'm fortunate I have a, a good array of sign language interpreters, but statewide we don't. If you think about the county or down east or, or the islands of Maine, 
it's really a challenge. How do you get those services? But we're hoping to, well, we're approaching an idea of regionalization, that we're going to regionalize like we do for uh, birth to five-year-olds, that we, we can go out and we can provide services kind of in, uh, in a regional way that we can provide greater assets to support services for all staff as well. So. You mentioned to me before we came on the air that your son is a filmmaker. That's correct. What has your experience been as a parent who is deaf, of a child who presumably is not deaf? That's correct. Uh, none of my, I have three children, none of them are deaf. And ironically for me, my, my oldest daughter is, uh, is a very gifted trombone player, went to Juilliard. And um, then that was an amazing immersion for me to be exposed to music. Uh, classical music in, in a way that I could never fathom and um, I can't distinguish for example on a CD you know what's a trombone what's French horn and <clears throat> as hard as I try I, I can't really distinguish that but in a live performance I can see that so so I'm thrilled that my parents my children have this incredible immersion to the arts and I credit the my community of Southwest Harbor is an incredibly culturally rich uh, performing arts-based program. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, as parents, we just nurture their interests and uh, we can't really take credit for, for their successes. But, but uh, yeah. Are, uh, there, are there challenges that deaf parents have raising hearing children? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I, I, um, we, uh, my family have learned to kind of live with my, my deafness, you know, um, you know, when you wear hearing aids, they're not always one that you want to wear 24-7. You can't really. You can't sleep with them because um, they squeak if you sleep on them. And um, and so, so frequently if they're off, then it's a challenge for, for my children and, and wife to communicate with me. So they have ways of getting my attention. And I'm a very good lip reader. And then I usually, if I know I'm engaged in a conversation, I'll, I'll put hearing aids back on. Um, so, yeah, I, and I hope that we never really um, talked, talked about it or, or seen anything um, from my children's point of view of what they gain by um, the experience of having me as a deaf father. But I think they've seen um, incredible um, energy and uh, resistance. Uh, persistence I guess in terms of just sticking with a goal and working myself through and I know that a lot of the things I've done in my life have not been easy and I think it's made them challenge themselves to do that too at least I hope so you are uh, or at least at one point you were a runner that's correct you were a cross-country star in yep. college and yeah. then you went on and you participated in the Deaf Olympics that's do you true. still run uh, yes I do um, that's really interesting to me um, so as you, I couldn't find my niche in public school. Public school was, was rather hard, and a lot of it because people didn't know what to do. So I was basically just given the right to go to public school, but I didn't have any support. I had nothing. And uh, so my academic experience, I, I went on college track because I wanted to go to college. I had two older sisters, and I aspired to go to college. My parents went to college, and and it just so hard for me to do what I had to do. and. Um, but I kept persisting that way and didn't have very good self-esteem because I felt really stupid and uh, 
didn't feel uh, nothing could really master academic. But I found that um, even though I had severe asthma, which in that time wasn't really treatable, um, you know, there was no exercise-induced asthma or treatments or anything. So I decided um, I found running that I could run and get sick later, and I didn't really care about getting sick later. And uh, it was just so exciting to be part of a state championship team and to have great coaches. And I, I emerged as a leader, became the captain of a team, and um, took that confidence to another level and became class president and found myself as a leader. And I've always had that leadership piece in my life, and that, but I attribute that because of the success I had in running. And uh, so then I had the chance to, so I always wanted to run the Boston Marathon. And I always remember when I was a child, I couldn't run 40 yards, the width of a football field, because I had, couldn't do gym. I had to stand beside the gym teacher. So I always remember that 40 yard, I couldn't run 40 yards, that I wanted to run the Boston Marathon. That became kind of a passion. Um, I was driven to that goal. And then once I experienced Boston, it wasn't good enough that I ran Boston. I then wanted to see how fast I could run Boston. So I had some really great years. I ran really fast. And, uh, and I'm very humbled. I was inducted to the main running Hall of Fame. Um, you know, and, um, and I just met so many wonderful people along the way. But it also taught me a lot about goal setting and to do a marathon. It made my uh, pursuit of a doctorate that much easier because I just made everything a mile, you know, every class a mile, every defense a mile, and everything. So it was very manageable. I, I, I saw it to the end, and yeah. I've been speaking with Dr. Owen Logue, who is the executive director of the Governor Baxter School for the Deaf, Maine Educational Center for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing on Mackworth Island in Falmouth. It's been a pleasure to speak yeah. with you, and I really have enjoyed hearing your, your story. Yeah, thank you very much. Dr. Zach Mazzoni, DO, created Dayspring Integrative Wellness in Bath, Maine, with the belief that true health comes from building healthy relationships with your community, with your doctor, and with yourself. As a board-certified family and integrative medicine physician, Dr. Mazzoni and the whole staff at Dayspring are committed to supporting your wellness journey by providing integrative family medical care, osteopathic manipulation, herbal and lifestyle consultations, counseling, and wave therapy. Dayspring offers an innovative membership-based model of healthcare that gives you time together with Dr. Pizzoni to build a personalized wellness plan based on your health goals. Daily access for acute appointments is available, and you can even schedule a secure video conference call in the privacy of your own home. I know Dr. Zach and his family, and I believe strongly in the personalized whole-person approach to health that he provides. This is why I am encouraging you to find out more for yourself by visiting dayspringintegrativewellness.com or by calling them directly at 207-751-4775. Dayspring, wellness the way it should be. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, Art Collector Maine, grownupgirl.com, and by Dayspring Integrated Wellness. Our editorial producer is Kate Gardner. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasick. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Andrew King and Dr. Lisa Belli. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. <laughs>